Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. We are not doing church home, in case you were wondering. But we are starting something new that we've been preparing for, and I've been reading and studying and praying, and I'm excited to jump into it. Uh, This picture here, I love these pictures. Have you seen, have you seen these images? This is, this is an image from the Hubble Space Telescope. I don't know about you, I love these things. This one, this is something called, uh, this is a piece of something called Mystic Mountain. It's an image that the Hubble Space Telescope took, and if you take the whole image, it's three and a half light years across the image. I mean, it's this massive cluster of gas and dust, and they call it a stellar nursery, just a place where new stars are being born, and it's become one of those iconic images. Here's what's so fascinating about it. It's 7,500 light years away, which in space terms is right next door. I guess that's what's always fascinated me about the universe and about the tuning of the universe. And it's why in the Uh, in the fields of the study of the universe, you'll find more more Christ followers than almost any other science field. We just get into the vastness of the universe and the fine-tuning necessary for it to all function, and it points us to God. They launched a a new telescope. You may have followed this. It's called the the Webb for short, Uh, Uh, the Webb Telescope. And it's bringing us images, light, from the furthest reaches of the universe. 13.5 billion light years away. So here's what's always made this so fascinating to me. When you look at light that is arriving from 13.5 billion years away, you're, you're literally looking back at the beginning of time. An easy way to think of it is like somebody had sent you a letter and it took 13.5 billion years to get here. And when you open it up and read it, you're seeing a snapshot of the very beginning. And for me, it's always been an echo of those opening words of Scripture. In the beginning, God. But that's not really what I want to talk about this series. But it is a good way to start it. You see, Genesis is just like that. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are their windows to the very beginning. They show us how it all started. 
it's important to remember this. Genesis is not the story of how God created the universe. It was never meant to be, and it doesn't try to be. But it is the story of who created the universe. And maybe also why and what we are for. It's not how. It doesn't even try and tell us that. It just tells us who and why and what we're meant for. And it's why it's so important. In fact, if you want to unfold the confusion in our world and in us, you'll have to go back to Genesis. You'll have to go back to chapters 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and there you'll begin to unfold the story of who we are and what we were meant to be. And it is a beautiful story. And that's what I'd like to do in this series of messages. Let's start here right at the beginning with what we were meant to be. Let me read you some verses that may sound familiar, but let me try and offer something from them that maybe we haven't thought of or thought of quite closely enough. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Then down in verse 31, the writer says, Then God looked over all he had made. And now, it says, He saw that it was all very good. And the evening passed, and the morning came, marking the sixth day. God has wrapped up his creative effort with the creation of you and I, and he gives to us his image. We are image bearers of God, and he steps back. And at every successive day of creation, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. But now, he says, it's very good. <clears throat> there are essentially two accounts of the creation. One in chapter 1 and another in chapter 2. I've always thought an easy way to look at it is chapter 2 is sort of zooming in on the particulars, giving us some details about creation. And it does that here. So let me read to you one more description. From chapter 2 and verse 25, it tells us something about the creation. It says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. That's an interesting way to wrap it all together. They felt no shame. Prior to everything that's coming, prior to the fall, God looks at it and he says, it is so good. 
And the writer wants to try and help you and me capture just what it was like. And, and to do that, he, the, the best thing he can come up with is to describe something that's not there. Shame. He's saying there was a moment when we were made, when we were created, where this thing that plagues us, shame, brokenness, wasn't there. We were whole people. It's like he, he's describing something that hasn't been spoiled yet. It's like somebody taking you to, the, uh, to, to a piece of land that's covered in houses and saying, I can remember when you could watch this all the way down to the ocean and there wasn't a single house. Unspoiled. Some years back, Brittany was doing her grad work in Scotland, and I've always said, get your kids to study abroad places you want to visit. It's a perfect excuse. And so we uh, saved our pennies and gathered the family up, and we took a, a road trip to Scotland, and I fell in love. If someday I disappear, you'll find me in Scotland. I just, goodness. I love the history of it, but more than that, I was just taken by the, by the beauty of it. And I wasn't, for a long time, I wasn't exactly sure why. We were taking a, a trip. We loaded up the family in the car, and we were traveling across. And it's not a, it's not a big country. You, you travel across, a, you know, some hours across from one side. We were over in St. Andrews and traveling across to the other side. And you travel what's through what's called the Scottish Highlands or the mountains. We had our, our, our younger kids with us, and Cody, I think, was like 13. Not thrilled to be visiting Scotland, I'm going to add. We're trying to make the best of it, and we're driving, and people have fallen asleep in this car, and all of a sudden, we just, we're, we're traveling this singular highway, and we're coming through a mountain pass, and there is this valley off to the left, just going forever. You can see the contours of the hills, largely not covered by trees, and there's greenery and rocks, and it was just stunning. We, we, we pulled off to the side of the road and we opened the door and we got out. And here's what I remember. I remember my 13-year-old, not impressed by anything, son getting out and going, whoa. Whoa indeed. An unspoiled landscape. That's what the writer is saying. He's saying there was a moment when we had no, no shame, no self-doubt. We were not the least bit self-conscious. We had no anxiousness, no anger, no addiction. Our cravings didn't control us. 
And we never, we never needed a mask. It was unspoiled. And the writer brings us back there as if to say, do you miss that? (laughs) If you hear that and you find there's a little bit of your heart that longs for it, I want to tell you two things. One, you were made for that. That's how he created you. And one day, he'll bring you back to that. But the beauty of what Jesus has done is that we don't have to wait. He is calling us back, back, back to that life where we get glimpses of that unspoiled whole person we were meant to be. What I'm saying in this series is that you were made for this and you can go back to it. Maybe not wholly or perfectly, but we catch beautiful glimpses of it. But to get there, you probably have to walk through what went wrong. Uh, That's in those same passages. Um, a little background, especially for those who've never read through the, the creation story, would be helpful. Uh, the creation story begins with God creating everything and placing his creation in a garden. And he describes things in the garden that are very important. Uh, many uh, commentators have noted that this story has all the imagery of a temple. A temple of worship with God at its point. But, but there's something that, that is notable about this garden. And in the garden, there, are, there, there is a tree of life at the top of the garden. And Adam and Eve are invited to take of the tree of life. The tree of life is literally God's tree. It is him as the source of life. It's why Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the full. It is the tree of life and they are invited to it. But on the way to the top of the garden, in the middle of the garden, it tells us there's another tree. It describes this uh, sort of vaguely as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the one pictured as an apple tree with a snake in it. And they're told, don't eat of this tree. Don't eat it, ever. This is the tree of false life. It's offering a lie. It's, it's like it's saying, you can choose for yourself what is right and wrong. The tree is there because you and I have been granted free will. Creatures with the ability to love or to reject. But the tree, make no mistake, is a decision to be our own God. I'm in charge. I decide what's right and what's wrong. 
Let me read to you the story. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the free fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it. And then she adds, or even touch it. If you do, you will die. That was a little bit of a, an exaggeration, a, a lie on her part. God hadn't said not to touch it, but the serpent replies with his own lie. You won't die. The serpent replied to God, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. There it is. You will be like God. You can be in charge. You get to decide what's right and wrong. Go ahead. Do it. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. Hmm. Watch what verse 7 says. At that moment, their eyes were opened. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to mask or cover themselves. They, they felt shame. They were, they were broken for the first time in their life. They were they were self-conscious. They were anxious. They would become angry. They had self-doubt. They began to mask themselves and cover up. It was like the, the seal had been broken. Have you ever bought something and brought it home from the grocery store and you open it up and you realize it had already been opened? The seal was broken. The yogurt is spoiled. The milk is sketchy. Who wants to risk it? And right on the label it says, if the seal is broken, get rid of it. Throw it out. That's what the writer is describing. He's describing the, the beginning of spoiling, of shame, of self-doubt, of self-consciousness of anger and addiction. We would have to deal with it. And deal with it we have. We found our ways, found our ways to make our fig leaves cover up. <laughs> Maybe your cover up is medicine. Or alcohol. Maybe an illicit drug. Maybe something more benign like adrenaline or activities or spending or people or food. 
It seems like they can all become a mask, an addiction that helps us to cover up the anxiousness, the self-doubt, the self-consciousness, the shame, the spoiling in our lives. You see, culture has a way it wants you to deal with shame. It wants to convince you that shame is the problem. You just have to do away with shame. You just have to convince yourself that there's nothing to be ashamed of. And then shame is gone. We pay people enormous sums of money to help us believe that wrong is right and broken is whole. And it's not. And we go on being anxious, angry, addicted, self-doubting, self-conscious, shame-filled people. Miroslav Volf, who is a professor at Yale, he was at Fuller before this, he came out of the, I believe it was the Balkans, and which formed his life as a theologian. And um, in one of his most famous works, Exclusion and Embrace, the theologian wrote something that's just worth listening to. He talks about this, this journey that we're on trying to cover shame. And here's what he says. He says, we flee universal values and particular identities and seek refuge from oppression in the radical autonomy of individuals. We create spaces in which persons can keep creating larger and freer selves by acquiring new and losing old identities. We are wayward, erratic vagabonds, ambivalent and fragmented, always on the move and never doing much more than making moves. <laughs> wayward, erratic vagabonds. He has a way with words, doesn't he? Always on the move, never doing much more than making moves. Is there a better way? Well, <laughs> I probably wouldn't be here if I didn't think there was. Christianity is at its core the hopeful way back to being whole people. But how does that happen? A short bit forward in the Bible, there's another story that just seems to me to resonate. It's another tree, and it won't be the last tree. The, the last and most important tree would be the tree of the cross. But in, in Exodus uh, chapter 3, the story of Moses picks up, and 
And in verse 1, it says, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. And then it says this, it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush, which many have said reminds of another tree. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't the bush burning up? I must go see it. And when, when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. He's, he's approaching God. You get the imagery. He's, he's drawing close to God. He, he sees something and he wants something. He's, he's tired of the backside of the desert. And, but in verse 5, the Lord says, Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. It's, it's meant to be a, a, a picture. This, this ground, this approach, you can't, you can't simply come to God that way. There, there, there's a perfection, there's a holiness, there's a righteousness. And he invites him to come, but he invites him to come by removing, symbolically removing his shoes, the dirt of the world gathered on him. It's a, it's a picture, it's an image. And it's an image that would carry all the way forward into the New Testament. You would see it pictured through the sacrifices of the Old Testament and then finalized in the sacrifice of Jesus. But how do we get back? 1 John speaks of this so clearly. I chose this passage. Because it introduces something that we might run by. Don't run by it. It's such an important piece of the process. Confession. Not to a pastor or a priest, but confession. The opening of our heart. Here's what it says in 1 John chapter 1. Just a few verses. Verse 8. He says it this way. He says, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. But if I could go back to verse 9. If we confess our sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all wickedness. Confession. Confession is the way back. It rejects the idea of masks and cover-ups and new identities and excuses and justification, and it invites us to humble ourselves and let go in confession and experience his cleansing and to find in that place wholeness. The confession may be the confession of an overt, specific sin that you or I have been clinging onto. Desperate to not admit it was wrong or our fault, but it's ours. And now, confess. And in confession, we find we find quiet confidence. We find a non-anxious presence. It's the way back. A couple of weeks ago, I was going to breakfast with some friends. I pulled into the parking lot and it was busy. There were some cars in front of me and I got right behind the car in front of me waiting for them to find a spot while I found a spot. And the car stopped. I looked at the car. I saw Florida license plates. I got nervous. If you have Florida license plates, nothing against you. And then I saw the white lights of reverse come on. And I panicked. I drove defensively. This person's backing up into me and doesn't see me. And I put my car in reverse and I gunned it. Right into the Jeep in back of me. Jeep had just put on one of those Mad Max looking rigs on the front of the Jeep. Meant to impale little Toyota Highlanders like I have. Just crunched it. Didn't even scratch his car. Man. I got out. I looked. Miss Florida was already parking. Didn't know anything had happened. (laughs) It's the way of the world, I guess. My son told me, Dad, you should have let her hit her. She'd have had to pay. He's not wrong. Best part was when I got out and the guy looked and he laughed. He goes, "Uh, you're my pastor. (laughs) And he said, I haven't been in church in a while. I guess this is a sign. Man, that was an expensive church invite, folks. Let me tell you, man, oh, man. I got a price on it. Not cheap, not cheap. 
It's ugly, but it's the back of the car. Tailgate still opens, lights aren't broken. A little bit uglier than it used to be. I now have a choice, folks. I went to my insurance company and I asked them, I said, what's my surcharge going to be? Oof. Six years. $400 a year. In case you were wondering. <laughs> Still cheaper than the repair. True story? I haven't turned it in yet. I'm just driving it that way. I left my kid's college stickers up top explaining why I haven't fixed the car, right? <laughs> Still paying this, folks. Still paying this. There's a little bit of just swallow your pride and pay the cost if you want to get back to new. Are you with me? How much do you want to get back to new? How tired are you of living a life of cravings and masks, of anxiousness and anger, of self-doubt and self-consciousness, all flowing out of a simple shame? I'm not saying that every bit of shame comes from something we've done. Sometimes it flows out of things that others have done to us. What I'm saying is there's a way back. This is an invitation to confession. In a moment, we're going to bow our heads and no one will know what you're praying about, what you're doing. You could be checking off your to-do list, thinking about brunch, we're beginning the process of confession. Maybe it's something specific you need to confess. Maybe your confession is, is not about a specific sin, but more about a life that's been lived faithlessly, trusting only in yourself and not in God filled with anxiousness. It, it may be that your confession leads you to someone else. It leads you to his AA and celebrate recovery gets so well. It leads you to make amends. Maybe. But I can tell you it begins with confession to God. You may find it helpful to get alongside a, a, a friend, a, a fellow follower of Jesus who, who's deeply committed, and you may just need to share your own confession as a layer of accountability and opening your soul. But I know this. I know it begins. The way back, the way to a whole person begins with confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. And we walk a little bit closer back to the whole people we were meant to be. Would you bow with me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And I just want to give you a moment to, to pray. Right where you're at. To begin the process of confessing pride or anger, secrets and struggles, a dark moment that you've clung to, an identity you've wrapped yourself around, confess it. And begin your walk back to the whole person he meant you to be. Father, we're so far from perfect, it feels unnecessary to say. But we see in those opening words of Genesis a beautiful picture, an unspoiled whole people. And we want that. Less anxious, less angry. Self-consciousness and shame slipping away. No need for masks or cover-ups. Our cravings lose their power over us. And Father, we know until one day when you make everything that's wrong right, we won't, we won't find that perfect wholeness but we find glimpses of it. We walk towards it because we were meant for it. So we humble ourselves before you. We shed our ego and our pride and we confess where we've been wrong and broken. We ask for your forgiveness and your cleansing. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to secure it for us so that we could have life, a full life, as a gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.